What I thought that I would like to talk to you about today, uh, now originally I had understood this was going to be the first class of a course entitled Buddhist Meditation Traditions, right? Is that right. correct? Yeah. But, uh, and of course, the ultimate purpose of all Buddhist meditation traditions is awakening. There are all kinds of other benefits of meditation, of course, as we know. Uh, but from the, from the Buddhist perspective, the primary goal and purpose of meditation is to uh, achieve our own awakening and liberation in this lifetime. And so I thought that what I would do today is to share with you uh, some of the thoughts and uh, experiences uh, and things that uh, I have learned about uh, what uh, we have described as the threshold of awakening. Now, probably you are all like myself in that uh, you have uh, you have the idea that there is some uh, very significant event that uh, serves as a dramatic turning point and prior to which we would say somebody is a worldling and after which we would say that that person is uh, is a, uh, an awakened being. Uh, whether we're speaking of sudden total enlightenment or the graduated stages as described by the Buddha, uh, there, there is this distinction between uh, when one is a worldling and one becomes an Aryan. And I had, I, I don't know where I first uh, acquired the concept that this was a singular, dramatic, recognizable event. Um, but that's why I say you, you probably all share the same perception. Uh, in the Theravadan tradition, it's usually called Magapala, path and fruition. And uh, in the uh, Mahayana tradition, it's called the uh, Darsana Marga, uh, or the, uh, the path of seeing. And most of the descriptions, as hard to come by as they are, fit with this being a very dramatic and singular event. This is also, uh, we also find uh, this in other traditions, in uh, the various Vedanta traditions, uh, we could uh, we could do a survey, but there is this tendency to associate awakening uh, with a a very dramatic, identifiable event. And so I took this for granted for many years. And uh, certainly, if we look at the descriptions in uh, uh, the the various texts and commentaries that have come down to us. I'm not referring to the sutras here, because actually when we look in the sutras, we don't find this. But if we look in the other texts, like the Visuddhimagga and the various Mahayana 
commentaries and, and descriptions of the uh, great masters, what we find laid out are systematic series of practices that evolve through stages, through various stages. Um, and what they all have in common is there is this arrival at, the, at a particular point of Magapala or Dasana Marga, where uh, this transformation takes place. And in terms of uh, the tradition that I was trained in and practiced in, my own experiences and the experiences of most other people that uh, I have had occasion to talk with over the years, there was really nothing to ever challenge this perception. But at some point, I started to realize that there were people who seemed in every respect to be awakened according to the definition provided by the Buddha, which we can access through the sutras, who were not aware of having ever experienced this sort of darsana marga or magapala experience, this dramatic transformational experience. And uh, this was puzzling to me in many ways. Uh, for two reasons, uh, I, I guess primarily. One is that, of course, it was at variance with what uh, I understood to be the established doctrine of Buddhism. And the other was that it was difficult to understand how the particular transformation that we're talking about could occur otherwise than in this form of a dramatic realization, an intense experience which uh, led to a permanent change in, in the way that the uh, mind responds to experience. And so it was very difficult for me to see, well, how could this change come about without that? But nevertheless, more and more over time, I began to be bothered by the fact that there seemed to be people who had all of the attributes of an awakened being, but hadn't had that experience. So, if if we go to the sutras, and this is always the source when we're you know when we're puzzled about the way it, the way something is presented to us the way it has arrived to us now, 2,500 years later, the first question was, well, what, what did the Buddha say about this? As opposed to all of those teachings and teachers that have come down to a sense, what did the Buddha say? And as far as I can determine uh, in examining the sutras, uh, there is no reference to this sort of magapala event, this abrupt, sudden, transforming experience of awakening in the sutras. What we do find, many, many references to individuals uh, achieving stream entry, uh, becoming awakened, uh, and even descriptions of attainment of the higher paths, 
that seem to take place in a circumscribed period of time. There are descriptions that while a person is was walking or hearing a discourse or while a particular incident was taking place uh, or while they were doing something. For example, uh, one of the Buddha's disciples achieved awakening while fanning him. Um, so whereas what the sutras indicate that there is some period of time over which the change takes place, there's never any clear and distinct reference to this experience of enlightenment that probably you, certainly myself, and I think most people in the modern world have come to associate with awakening. Is that we're going to have a you know, zap, the lightning bolt comes in the top of the head, and you know, from that point on everything is changed. There's no reference to that in the sutras. And uh, so I found this very, very interesting. Uh, I found it reassuring because on the one hand, I seem to be discovering something in the world of experience uh, that if, if the sutras had said that this is part of it, you know, part of the definition of stream entry or awakening was to have a Magapala experience, then this would have been a problem because worldly experience was not matching up with the Buddhist doctrine. And uh, the Buddha himself said, when that happened, question the doctrine, not the experience. <laughs> so, uh, the fortunately, didn't have, uh, didn't, that difficulty was not present there. What we do find in the sutras is that awakening is defined according to the elimination of the fetters and stream entry according to the elimination of the first three fetters. And uh, the uh, third and fourth path by the elimination of the uh, next two and then the next five fetters, so that all ten are eliminated by the time a person becomes an arahat. And the, uh, this, this is not particularly, an, uh, particularly ambiguous or difficult to understand. A person is a stream enterer when they have overcome the attachment to and the belief in the personal self. Uh, and this is probably the most important and significant one of these fetters. Uh, together with that, they have overcome the attachment to uh, rites, rules, and rituals as being uh, efficacious in their own right. And the other thing that they have overcome is the fetter of doubt. And so uh, in terms of who is a stream entrant and who is not, if we refer to the sutras, we can apply this standard. Uh, does, does a person seem to be free of doubt with regard to with regard to the Dharma and I could say more about that and maybe I will. And secondly, does the person seem to be uh, free of attachment and belief in the efficacy of rites, rules, and rituals? But most importantly, is the person free of attachment and belief in the reality of some kind of a self-existent 
personal self or soul or, or atta. This is the, I, I said this is the most important one because we, uh, the path as a whole, the Buddha, when asked what he taught, he taught suffering and the liberation from suffering. And uh, when we look at the cause of suffering, the cause of suffering is craving in the form of desire and aversion. And that, in turn, is rooted in ignorance. Wherever ignorance is, pressure, is present, desire and aversion can arise. What ignorance are we referring to? What the Buddha referred to specifically was ignorance or delusion or confusion or illusion involving the reality of the personal self. And of course, if we examine closely, woven in with this is likewise uh, the illusoriness of our normal perception of the world, uh, which another way of describing is, is emptiness. So uh, the ignorance that must be uprooted because it is the very core of the problem that uh, leads to our suffering is ignorance uh, based in uh, uh, failure to understand the emptiness of the self and further compounded by failure to understand the emptiness of, uh, uh, of the objects of our phenomenal experience. So if we're looking for a stream entrant, that would be the thing that we would look for. Does this person seem to be afflicted by the attachment to self? Does this person uh, seem to be addicted to, uh, the, uh, to rules and, and rituals? And does this person manifest any sort of doubt? Uh, if we look further in the sutras, the other thing, the other way that we find that stream entry is defined is in terms of the characteristics that uh, a stream entrant manifests. And uh, there are a variety of these, if I can call some of them up from the top of my head. Um, of course, there are those that are directly related to the removal of the three fetters. But uh, the other things that are mentioned is uh, uh, a manifestation of generosity, which is logical uh, if a person has acquired uh, some degree of non-selfishness uh, in combination with compassion. So we would expect to see generosity manifest. Uh, virtue, uh, not that the sutras are telling us that a stream entrant has pure virtue, because they do not. As a matter of fact, the, what the Buddha says about the virtue of a stream entrant is that if he commits an offense, that what he does is he quickly recognizes it and quickly makes the uh, appropriate uh, reparations, corrections, and so forth. And so this is what we'd expect to see in a stream entrant. Not that, they, that their behavior, uh, that their virtue was absolutely perfect, and, of course, in Buddhist terms, what is virtue? It's mostly, it's in one way or another, it all comes down to non-harming. So uh, if we see a person who still occasionally may engage in activities that uh, are unwholesome or non-virtuous and that they produce some degree of harm to other beings, 
yet we see that 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 happens rarely, but the person immediately or very quickly recognizes. And as soon as they recognize, they do everything they can to to make a correction for it. Then that person has fulfilled the uh, uh, description in the sutras of the characteristic of a stream entrant. A stream entrant is also said to have no fear of death, no fear at the time of death. And of course, this makes sense to us too. If, if for someone who has awakened to have some experience of uh, an ultimate truth that, uh, that has led to the abolition of their attachment to sense of self, then clearly most, most of the basis for the normal human fear of death would have been uh, overcome as a result of that. So that, that's another thing that we would uh, expect to see. Um, uh, I, I can make reference here to Tanasaro Bhikkhu. He sum summarized some of the wonderful little free book that you might be interested in called Into the Stream by Tanasaro Bhikkhu. And he goes through the sutras and uh, extracts all this information. So let me see if I can find any more of these characteristics of what it means to be a stream entrant. Oh, yes, uh, okay. So there's generosity. Another one is freedom from enthrallment by the five hindrances. <laughs> okay, and so I assume you're all familiar with the five hindrances. Uh, uh, lust, what's that? They're, they're not all of them. Not all of them. Okay, well, these are, you'll see in all of these things a certain amount of overlap. So the first two hindrances are um, sense desire and ill will. Uh, and then there, there is sloth and torpor, which is uh, maybe better described as resistance, uh, laziness, uh, lack of motivation. Uh, then there is agitation due to uh, worry and remorse. And then there is skeptical doubt. Well, we've, we've already seen that uh, stream has overcome doubt uh, by it, since desire and aversion are rooted in the belief in the ignorant belief in the personal self, when that has been uh, dealt with, then although we may still have all sorts of habits of behavior based in desire and aversion, uh, they are rootless, so to speak. So uh, this is not saying that the person is free from desire and aversion. That doesn't happen until the third stage of the path when a person becomes a non-returner and has overcome all forms of craving except for the craving for being. Um, but without the root, desire and aversion don't have the same power. So we can say that the enthrallment to desire and aversion or sense desire and ill will, the first two of the, uh, of the five hindrances, have been significantly uh, diminished. So there's no more enthrallment. Uh, 
anyway, so that that's another one is that uh, there's no enthrallment to the five hindrances. Oh, and this is a very important one, I think, is the uh, diminished uh, tendency for suffering. In one of the sutras, the Buddha, he... Uh, has dirt under his fingernails, he puts his hands in the dirt, and he says, which, because which is there more of, the dirt under my fingernails or the dirt that make up the world? And you know the answer. <laughs> right? <laughs> he always used these. Uh, it, there was never any confusion with the point he was trying to get to. He said that the suffering of a stream entrant was like the dirt under his fingernails, whereas the suffering of a worldling was like the dirt that made up the entire entire world. And so another thing that we could expect, and it would go along with everything else that we have learned about the stream entrant from the sutras, is that uh, the stream entrant would not experience suffering to the same degree that the worldly does. And since suffering is rooted in uh, the ignorance about self-nature, and since that has been overcome, we would expect that. Uh, we would expect a stream entrant, when he finds himself, when he becomes mindfully aware that there exists a state of suffering in himself, he would also be reminded of the truth that he has learned the understanding about uh, the, the truth of this personal self. And his mind would know that there was no genuine basis for that suffering. And so he would be able to give up the internal mental causes of that suffering. And so it's not that a stream entrant is free of suffering because he's not entirely free of craving. But it's that the suffering of a stream entrant is greatly diminished. So this is very similar to, you know, the, the, uh, the situation of a stream entrant with regard to virtue. Uh, the stream entrant is not, uh, does not have perfect virtue, and the stream entrant is not completely free of suffering. But the stream entrant has the most valuable uh, cognitive basis for being able to recognize. The, the error in both the non-virtuous activity and the suffering, and to let go of those, to engage in the mental process that involves the letting go of the compulsion to ga engage in an unvirtuous activity, and the uh, perpetuation of a mental state of suffering. So hopefully I've painted a picture of what the sutras say a stream entrant is. And it doesn't say anything about a, an enlightenment experience, a mystical experience. Maybe that's the word that we should use because what we're really talking about here is a dramatic mystical experience. And the sutras don't identify that as being necessary. We also find that today. If you, uh, if you ask a meditation teacher, how can you tell when somebody has had a genuine Magapala experience, when they've had a genuine awakening, um, 
the answer that you're going to get may involve the various criteria that that teacher has learned in their tradition about the description that the yogi might provide of their experience. And this will differ from one tradition to another. But the common answer that they'll all give you is that, but we can't really know for sure until we've watched what happens over the next few years, months and years. Has the person changed? And is that change persistent? And if the person has genuinely changed at a very deep level in, in the terms that are described in the sutra, and if, that, if those changes persist, then we know that they're a stream entering. So that's what's really important. So if we go back to the mystical experience, this profound, however it is, it, it takes different forms in different traditions, but however it happens, we take that, what we discover is that the Magapala experience does not define awakening, it's the other way around. Awakening defines the Magapala experience. If you have an experience, it remains in question until we see that, in fact, you manifest all the characteristics of an awakened being. And if you manifest those characteristics, then it was a genuine Magapala experience. So, so I, I, I find this all very interesting. Uh, it led me to start collecting stories of awakenings. Uh, this is this is one thing that you'll find that it's not there's not too many Buddhists that describe their awakening experiences and, and publish them, but there are some, and there are many who are non-Buddhist. Uh, in Buddhism, I think pretty much in all of the traditions, there has grown up this. Uh, uh, idea that we should never speak openly about uh, these spiritual attainments. And this comes from the instructions in the Vinaya, the uh, code of conduct for the monastics and the Buddha. Uh, what he actually said, he didn't say, don't ever talk about your attainments. He said that it was a, uh, a major misconduct to claim attainments that you don't have, or to use the claim of attainments for any sort of self-gain. So the Buddha never really said, don't talk about your attainments, but nevertheless, it has been interpreted in that way over the millennia. So there's not a lot of Buddhist accounts of personal accounts of awakening, but there are some, and there are many others. So a number of years ago, I started collecting whatever accounts I could get, Buddhist and non-Buddhist, just to see uh, what sort of patterns would emerge in there. And the, the first pattern, the large-scale pattern that emerges, that emerged for me, is I found that there were actually three kinds of descriptions. And first of all, what I did myself is I, I wouldn't consider a description of an awakening important enough to consider unless there was enough biographical information about the person subsequently to strongly suggest to me that they did meet the suttic requirements of having overcome the three fetters and manifest the characteristics 
of a stream entrant. And if the if the biographical information that I had was not you know, supported that, then I examined their awakening experience. Uh, so out of those, I saw three different kinds. The majority, by far, are those who had a profound mystical experience, a dramatic conversion. And that corresponds to the Magapala idea. The second group were those who couldn't point to that, or didn't point to that, uh, not necessarily... You don't always know what a person didn't tell you, but that their description was rather of something that happened to them over a period of time, much like in the sutras. And the other thing that was similar between those descriptions and the sutras is that they didn't always take place in a meditation or retreat environment. We think of the enlightenment experience of Magapala as something that happens like it's your third month into an intense retreat, and then it happens. We don't think of it happen as you're getting on a bus or while you're walking down the street. But in fact, these are the descriptions that are in the sutras when these sorts of things are happening. And sure enough, if you look at descriptions of awakening, you'll find, uh, like I say, they're, they're a minority, but you'll find descriptions that uh, don't necessarily take place in a meditation environment and don't seem to take place all at once. They seem to be, uh, the description at least in, involves a much longer period of time, not some instant or some 15 minutes or, or something like that of, of being embedded in total bliss, but rather what occurred over a period of time. And this corresponded with uh, uh, other people that I had met and discussions I'd had. But then there was a third group, which interestingly enough, didn't even describe a, a day or a week or something like that when uh, their awakening occurred. It seemed to be far more subtle. And indeed, I have met someone like that myself. Uh, and uh, her description, I think, is fairly typical that she gradually realized that she didn't see things that the way that she used to. Uh, that she didn't react to things the way that she used to. That she didn't see and react to things the way that other people around her did. And she began to feel more and more confounded over time by, you know, why is everybody making themselves so miserable so unnecessarily? Don't they see? Don't they understand? You know, and, and so uh, she, she came to be aware that she had changed and she could describe the ways in which that she had changed in terms of her perceptions and beliefs. And so uh, she's an example of this third category where it, it's not even a wonderful day of blissful realization and... and uh, understanding and recognition and things like that, but it's, it, there's, there's not even a, a week or, or a month that can be pointed to when this happened. So I find this very, very interesting. Uh, takes me back to, I, I originally said that, uh, first of all, I had always 
thought that there had to be a Magapala experience. And then the other thing was that it only made sense to me that there was. Because you have an experience of a reality, uh, a profound, profound experience of knowing that the something that is not available to our ordinary consciousness. And that produces a change in a person. It produces a change in the way their mind works, but probably also produces a change in the way their brain works. This is one of the interesting things recently, as we've shown that uh, the, the human brain uh, exhibits an enormous plasticity and that our meditation practices change the way the brain works. And if you talk to people about their Magapala experiences, one of the things, uh, there is a phrase that probably didn't encounter that much a thousand years ago, but you certainly encounter a lot today, which is that the brain somehow got rewired. That's what it seems like because the mind just works in a different way. So, the question is, then, how can this happen? I can see how this happens in a Magapala experience. When the mind ceases constructing all of the illusions that we're trapped in, and there is a direct experience of the underlying uh, of, of, of the suchness or thusness or tataga, tataga, tatata, tatata, the suchness that underlies this, then, then, and that knowledge undermines the way that uh, your mind normally interprets experience and reacts to experience, and it produces produces the change. If you have an experience of there being no self, and especially if this is based on uh, a meditation practice in which you've had a lot of insights into uh, the fact that a self is not necessary in the way that we think it is, and that the self is not really there in the way that we think it is, and then the mind stops its constructing activities entirely for a period of time, then this reprograms the computer, so to speak. It's, this is completely new information, and you can expect that later on that uh, that the results the computer will generate on the in response to new experience is going to be different than it used to be because there's you know there's completely different uh, fundamental basis for interpreting the experience and deciding on the appropriate response. That's very understandable. But if it's not a conscious experience, it's hard to see, well, how could this happen? How could this happen if you don't have the conscious experience of knowing the way things really are because the illusion has fallen away? And then, at least for myself, while pondering this, um, you may be familiar with the Mahasi method of Vipassana practice that has become very popular in the Theravadan tradition in about the last hundred years. It's a, it is a 
meditation technique that uh, is designed to bring a person to uh, uh, a very clear awareness of their rising and passing away, and then particularly of the passing away, and most particularly that not only uh, sensory phenomena pass away, but the the cognitive process that knows the phenomena passes away. So the person discovers the truth of emptiness, and it, it leads through a series of stages to a Magapala experience. And But in that particular tradition, different than the one that I follow, the Magapala experience is described as a gap in consciousness or a forgetting. And this puzzled me as well. Because if a person has, even for a few seconds, but but often 10 or 15 minutes, an experience of dwelling in pure conscious awareness with no subject and no object, and and this is this is what comes from uh, this this is the sort of Magapala or, or, or Darsana Marga that is described uh, for most of the Mahayana. Uh, realization practices. Well, that that to me was always very understandable. If you have a an experience and a recollection of the experience, but it's sort of the same problem. What makes the change in a person if all there was was a gap in your consciousness that lasted only a, a few seconds? And I realized that the difference... Here we have... In the Samatha Vipassana tradition, leads to a Darsana Marga experience that is fully conscious. I mean, as, as a matter of fact, as far as I'm concerned, in in terms of all the other ways that you can describe it, voidness, emptiness, non-duality, blah blah blah. The one thing that stands out about the description of the Darsana Marga experience is it is fully conscious above anything else. It is fully conscious. And here we have another tradition that says, ah, no, what happens is there's a gap. There's a forgetting. And, uh, of course, this is exactly the same problem that we have with somebody who doesn't recall having any kind of experience at all, not even a gap. So... Uh, so I, I, I think about this, and I think, well, okay. We have a lot of conscious experiences that we don't necessarily remember. So, it, so to have a gap in our recollection doesn't necessarily mean that there was a gap in conscious awareness. You know, so it may be that following certain methods that uh, this accounts for the difference. And, and there is a difference between these two methods that I could see as accounting for this to some degree, perhaps entirely, but contributing in some way. In the Samatha Vipassana practices, as, you, as the practice becomes more refined, the object of your attention, of your conscious awareness, becomes more and more the mind itself and consciousness itself, not an object. Whereas in the Mahasi Vipassana practice, you're watching objects. 
sense objects or mental objects arising and passing away. So all of the focus is on objects. So one thought I've had is, well, okay, if you're doing a practice that involves exclusively attending to the arising and passing away of objects, and that process stops, well, there's nothing to remember. So maybe that accounts for it. Whereas if you're doing a practice that causes you to become more and more reflectively aware of consciousness itself, if you're doing a Mahamudra practice where you're focused entirely on the mind and attempting to discern the emptiness of the mind and the nature of appearances arising from the empty mind, your attention is fully focused on not the objects of consciousness, but the process of consciousness, or, or I'm not sure what the right word is. And so if you arrive at the, the point of the stopping of the mind and the stopping of the world, it would not be so surprising that the experience would remain strongly in recollection as an experience of pure consciousness attended by non-duality and no self and no other and so on and so forth. So, uh, my, my thoughts on this are that one possibility is that maybe everyone has some kind of Magapala experience when they achieve stream entry. It's just that sometimes it's remembered and sometimes it's not. And that is kind of intellectually satisfying. Uh, but I'm not totally certain that this is really true. Because I'm still suspecting that, well, maybe there are other ways that the specific changes that need to take place can come about. And I think, I'll say this much, I think that the greatest value of all of our Buddhist practices is that they are systematic. And so if they lead you to a Magapala experience, you know how you got there, and you can immediately repeat it. And this is called palasamapati, or, or the, the absorption or the re-experiencing of, of, of fruition. What it actually means is going back to that state of interruption, of interruption of the fabricating activities of the mind and, and uh, experiencing nirvana again. So if you have a magapala experience, then you can have palasamapati. If you have an experience that was not, or, or if, sorry, if you have an awakening that was not arrived at by a systematic practice, then the problem that you have is that whatever change it produced in that moment, that's all you're going to get uh, unless you're lucky enough to buy accident stumble back into that experience again. Or, or else you're going to go, and I think this does happen. I think people have spontaneous awakenings. And I think they go and they find a meditation teacher and they learn how to meditate just so that they can eventually uh, achieve the palasamapati, that they can repeat that experience and continue on the path. Because having become a stream enterer, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done to become uh, the uh, once returner, and that's a person who, having overcome the attachment to the, to the personality view, then begins to work 
on the desire and aversion that still remain as, as the compulsive drivers of, of their behavior. And they greatly reduce that the, the once returner is somebody who has greatly reduced the uh, power of desire and aversion to, to direct their behavior. And then they continue their practice until they completely eliminate craving uh, so that they become a non-returner. And at this point, they're also liberated from the suffering that inevitably arrives from craving. The only thing that they have left is they still experience this inherent sense of being a separate self. And this leads to the, the only vestige of craving that they have now is still the craving for uh, existence. Uh, whether it be in the fine material realms or, or the uh, immaterial realms. And, and so this is why they're called a non-returner, because they don't return to this realm. But they, they still do have this attachment to existence. Uh, and so until, until they've lost that, then they will, they, they will continue. So that's the idea. And then the final stage is when a person completely overcomes the inherent sense of self. You know, the, the inherent sense. And in here it's important to understand that self is only definable or discernible with respect to an other. So it's, there is a distinction between self and other, and that's why the fetters that remain for a non-returner that must be overcome in becoming an arahat are uh, described in the terms that they uh, that they are. Uh, conceit being one of those, and by that, conceit doesn't really mean thinking I'm better than you, although that's conceit. It's also, it's basically thinking I am separate from you, that I am my own distinct uh, self-existent. N not thinking that, because actually a non-returner doesn't think that. They know better than that. But they still have the feeling that they are that. They still have this, the inherent sense of being a, a separate self. So I think it is most important on our path to cultivate a systematic path uh, to some kind of Magapala experience so that we can repeat the Pala uh, aspect of it, because this is necessary for our further progress on the path. And if we are so fortunate that we may achieve the awakening to stream entry before we have completed the development of a systematic path, or even without commencing training in a systematic path, that it's most important that we, we do take up a systematic path because uh, there's a lot more work left to be done. So Anyway. That's, that's my thoughts on the threshold of awakening recently, and uh, I hope you found some of this uh, interesting and useful. So maybe uh, uh, at, at this point, uh, I, I'd love to hear your comments or, or questions. Uh, yes? Um, I was wondering, inside of the Soto or Rinzai lineage of Japanese Zen, what would you say is the equivalent to stream entry? Uh, Sensei, uh, Roshi, um, like that. 
and, and then is the measuring stick for stream entry that you have described then equivalent to the to sort of the measuring, or should they be used for measuring sticks for those positions as well? Okay, I, I am not sufficiently familiar with uh, the Zen tradition to really answer that question. Uh, there may be someone else who is, or perhaps Dr. Chu can comment uh, on the first part of that. Although I would say that the same criteria apply. And I, I think that that, uh, you know, if, if we look at that, Zen is filled with all these lovely stories. Of, you know, I, Zen is the storytelling tradition, and there are all these poignant little quirky stories of, uh, you know, the, uh, you, uh, you know that the students actually achieved awakening because uh, he does some totally outrageous thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, or says some totally outrageous thing. Any, anyway, but uh, so, uh, uh, and and I've enjoyed reading those stories, but I haven't really studied the Zen tradition. But the stories I've read suggest to me that the teacher is looking for, you know, uh, a change in the patterns of mental processing that correspond exactly to uh, overcoming those feathers, and I'm sure if you follow the person afterwards, you would expect to see the other characteristics of the stream enter manifest, mm -hmm. but I can't answer the rest of your question. Do you have something to add to Well, there have been quite a few scholar practitioners who've done comparative works uh, between the Theravadan soteriological schemes and, and, and that of Zen Buddhism, and uh, what I have to say are really just based on a few of them. This is by no means representative of the Zen tradition as a whole. Uh, for example, uh, the recently deceased uh, Venerable Sheng Yin, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's a uh, Taiwanese uh, Chan teacher. And according to his description, uh, once you have attained the level called Chu um, Guan, which means the initial gate, or this is the, the special terminology in the, in the uh, Ninzai or Lingji tradition, then what you, what you have essentially gone through is that uh, you have experienced first this unification with the whole world, wherein you still experience this subtle distinct, uh, distinction between a self and the world, and all that you've experienced at this stage is you, you, uh, you've experienced a temporary merging of the two, but then there is still the subtle dichotomy of the two. Then you, you proceed thereon uh, to a still higher level, uh, where you experience the disappearance of both uh, the, the, the self and the world, then that will be the equivalent of what is called the stream entry in the, in the Theravadan tradition. So uh, according to Sunni, to, to, to make very long story short, you, what you're experiencing is you, you move from a personal self, which is at the level of ordinary worldling, to that of a greater self, to a universal self, where you feel as if you're one with the universe. And this is usually characterized with greater generosity, with a greater capacity for uh, compassion and so forth. Then eventually to no self. And this is, this is what, what marks off genuine, supramundane enlightenment. There are quite a few different soteriological models out there, and um, this is just one illustration. Follow up to that. I was wondering, would you say then, because earlier you mentioned um, that the purpose of 
all meditation traditions is awakening inside of the Buddhist lineage. Uh, so would you say that uh, the pursuit of awakening then uh, is truly essential if you are to achieve the, the um, stream entry, uh, that, that traditions that tend to secularize uh, meditation and de-emphasize awakening then actually can sort of, I guess, lead away from stream entry and perhaps world entry instead? Well, I don't know that they necessarily lead away. As, as I think, you know, we've seen the interest grow and spread in meditation in this country. And uh, it didn't really start out with people wanting to meditate to awaken. They wanted to meditate to solve personal problems, make their life better, be able to work better, do all kinds of things. But as more and more people began to take up meditation for those reasons. More and more people began to discover and become interested in the, the higher goals. So I don't think it leads away. I, I think instead what it does is uh, it, it offers a, an entry opportunity in, into the path for, for people that are not at a level yet that they are willing or capable of, of even contemplating something like an awakening. It's just, so I, 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 I don't, I think it's a very good thing, as a matter of fact. And uh, this is a whole different topic and lecture, if not book. But uh, it's very interesting that Buddhism in every culture is presented on a variety of levels. It's presented uh, on a very simplistic and mythical and from the point of view of the most uh, refined understanding of the Dharma, you, know, you might look at the popular Dharmas uh, uh, as they're understood and, and, and propagated in cultures as, as being just plain false and nonsense and misleading. But what they are is their Buddhism presented to people at the level that they can understand and assimilate and out of that, a certain proportion of those people are motivated to to pursue the Dharma at a more refined level. You know, I mean, probably probably the majority of the people in the world who are identified as being Buddhists um, are primarily concerned with their with the reincarnation of the self that they believe they are, and they believe that by living virtuously and practicing generosity, that they are creating better circumstances uh, for that self that they believe they are to be reincarnated in. You know, and so from the most sophisticated understanding of the Dharma we would look at that and say, well, you know, that's, that's a complete misunderstanding and misrepresentation. But on the other hand, it's not a problem because if people begin to practice uh, virtue and if they begin to take some interest in the teachings, that they, they have the potential to grow beyond that. I think the same thing's true of meditation, that it doesn't matter why you begin to meditate. If you have high blood pressure and begin to meditate, if you 
if you actually learn to meditate, there's a very good chance you're going to start to notice and discover things about your mind that will lead you further. Not necessarily, but but it, the possibility is there. And so, you know, I, I think, I, I don't care what the reason is. As a matter of fact, I think the reason a lot of young people take up meditation is because the the boy or the girl that they're attracted to is already doing it. And that's all right, too. That's a great reason. <laughs> that, that, that works as well. Uh, you know, if you don't mind, save your question. I want to go back to something, what you said. The description there that you gave uh, from the uh, Rinzai right. tradition that's fascinating because as a part of my own researches into mystical experiences of meditators that I've dealt with and those that I've read accounts of, I sort of recognize three kinds of what I call valid mystical experiences that are very common. And one is what I, is, I, I call it the non-dual witness state, where the meditator enters into the state where they see the whole world as the arising and passing away of appearance and illusion. But there is still this sense of uh, there being an observer who's observing all of this and separate and independent, this pure witness state. And then there's another mystical experience that uh, I, I describe as a unified mystical state. And that's where the person... There's, they have no sense of self anymore, that they are a part of everything. They have an experience of oneness with everything. And they look at a tree or a mountain and they will say something like, like I feel like, you know, it's not me looking at the tree, it's the consciousness that is the tree, and that's all there is. And, and, and there is just this one consciousness. And then there's the third state, which I call the... Uh, the true non-dual mystical, the pure consciousness experience, which corresponds, I think, to the Magyapala. And what amazes me is my categorization of these three kinds of mystical experiences, the, the dualistic, the unified, and the, and the non-dual, sound very, very right. similar. <laughs> and it's, it's so interesting uh, to see that in the Rinzai tradition, the idea of baozhen, or the retention of that initial transformative experience, is very important. And this is very reminiscent of the pala samapati that, that you were talking about, that even after that initial transformative mystical experience, what you need to continue to do is to draw inspiration from that experience and to retain that experience and to be able to reproduce that experience as much as you can and so that you're so so that the, the vision into reality is deepened and becomes more deeply ingrained in the personality. Exactly yeah. right. Yes, I, I agree with that totally. And that is once again the whole value of having these kinds of experiences as a result of a systematic practice. Because otherwise, and many people have these experiences, and they're a you know a peak experience. It's something that happened one time in their life. They never forget it. Changes them in some ways, but they can't go anywhere else with it. It's just you know something that once happened to them. So it, it, that part of it is very important. 
anyway, uh, I, that digression, I'd love to hear your question. Yeah. Um, you know, you said you were collecting stories about Buddhists and non-Buddhists, experiences awakening. Um, I wondered, <clears throat> how is it you define a genuine state of awakening outside of the Buddhist tradition? I guess I, I tend to think that someone who came about their experience of awakening within the Buddhist tradition is going to have this something of a Nicene Creed revolving around no self or what have you, but how um, how are you able to acknowledge or recognize these hagiographies as genuine awakening when the verbiage is different? What do you look for when the, when it's a theistic tradition or it's Advaita Vedanta where you arrive at Atman, you know, as refined as that is? Well, I, what, what I look for is things that I can recognize. And actually, when there are descriptions of the uh, uh, the realization of the universal self in the Advaita Vedanta tradition, which I read those and say, yep, that's non-dual pure consciousness, all right. That's that's the stuff that we're talking about. <laughs> you know, I just recognize that the terminology is the same. Even in the uh, the theistic traditions, the the complete dissolution of the the the, the self in in the Godhead, you know, uh, uh, those descriptions, they bear the same uh, the, the same imprint, and uh, so that's the kind of thing that I go by in terms of of the descriptions of the experience. But remember, one of the main things that I'm looking for is uh, two is the permanent changes in the person, you know. Uh, no matter what wonderful experience a, a Sufi or a saint had, if their life subsequently uh, doesn't seem to reflect the kind of understanding that we define as awakening, then uh, I don't think it should be considered. If I may, you know, I recall that on one occasion uh, I overheard a conversation that was going on between you and one of your students who asked uh, to have uh, his experience verified by you, and you pose the question, well, have you ever since encountered like a life-threatening, uh, uh, <laughs> agitating uh, situation in life, and then what was your reaction? And so I, yeah. I think that, was, that, that could be used as an illustration of what you mean. Yes, it, it, it could be, right, yes. And, uh, you know, at, and, and that's actually... Uh, you know, you, you you can't just pose a list of questions and say if they give this answer, you know. <laughs> but you can you can ask certain kinds of questions and then listen very carefully to the answer and how they give it, and uh, it can it can give you a pretty pretty clear idea. And I I found the same thing in the writings that I uh, you know uh, in the descriptions of people's experiences that there are things that that uh, that don't fit, and there's things that do. As a side issue, many of your students have witnessed how you yourself faced life-threatening situation <laughs> with with complete equanimity. <laughs> I suppose so. It just seems like the you know, <laughs> life's like that. Yes. Um, actually, uh, about your statement about the, the uh, Rinzai uh, and stuff like that, I was actually wondering your position or, or your your 
Well, like with so many things, uh, different people can say Tathagata Garbha and mean totally different things by it, have different understandings. And since what we're actually referring to, uh, well, Tathagata Garbha means the embryonic Buddha nature within us, the, the, uh, but, or, or the potential for the arising of the Buddha nature. But I think uh, if we're talking about the Buddha nature itself, that is the most subtle and refined, therefore most difficult to uh, uh, discuss in conceptual terms because it's completely beyond the conceptual and it's not graspable by the mind. So we're going to expect when people start talking about the ultimate nature of reality, uh, the the Buddha nature, and so on and so forth, we're going to get a lot of different uh, confusing and inconsistent explanations. Uh, personally, I... If you take Buddha nature to be synonymous with any and all of the other uh, terms that are applied to uh, the ultimate reality. So therefore, uh, Buddha nature encompasses nirvana, it encompasses the idea of emptiness, uh, it, uh, it is it is non-dual, it is non-conceptual, it is beyond the, the grasper and the grasp, and all of these sorts of things. Let's just boil it down to, let's say, ultimate truth. Now, <laughs> ultimate truth is universally present. There's nothing outside of ultimate truth. So, in that sense, by all means, the Tathagata Garbha doctrine is unquestionably true because, uh, you know, to uh, paraphrase Descartes, uh, I, I am, therefore, Tathagata Garbha. <laughs> even though the I is illusion and the am is uh, 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 it, it involves a, the myth of uh, the myth of ontology as I like to call it you know so uh, if you can understand the illusoriness of the I and the and the uh, mythological nature of the am uh, then I am, therefore, the target of Garba. You know. So, but if you start saying that, the, what was it you said, the, the, the mountains and the streams are Buddha? Well, you know, you're lost. That statement is lost totally in the ignorant, worldly view 
of the self-existent reality of Buddha's streams and mountains and everything else. It's, it's so far from understanding Tathagatagarbha that it's a clue that you should be very cautious of everything else that is said in the context that that comes from. So if, if, so if Tathagatagarbha uh, is used not to construct an Atman, but to, in another way, then you, then you feel that Tathagatagarbha is correct. But if it starts to reinforce Atman or, or permanence, then it becomes an issue. That, that is right. Yes, uh, uh, and the trouble is that Buddhism is full of things that people make into an Atman, a self. You know, uh, the uh, the Bhavanga, the Alaya Vijnana. Uh, you know, everywhere you look, you'll find things that one way or another people make into some kind of a replacement for the self that they don't want to give up. And Tathagatagarbha is really, really vulnerable to that, you know. But the thing that's helpful in keeping your thinking straight is uh, that absolutely anything, any concept that bears within it a distinction between self and not self, and any concept that bears within it a distinction between exists and does not exist, it, it's it's going to be fallacious. Uh, I, I mean, it might not that it might not be useful in a very restricted sense to help understand something or another, because we do pull ourselves up intellectually by our bootstraps. But ultimately, uh, as soon as you get to the point where you know I've got a tatagatagarbha and you've got a tatagatagarbha, we know we're wrong. <laughs> As soon as there's two of them, we've got a problem. <laughs> so even uh, when there's one, there's a problem too. <laughs> well, even even where even where there's one, there's a problem. That's right. But uh, yeah, this is uh, you know stream entry is about learning to uh, overcome this very fundamental illusion that we have of the self. And until until you've done that, you're really, you're at such a disadvantage trying to understand any of these things because your mind is going to keep coming up with just different disguised forms of the same self notion. And uh, you, you, all I can say is, is, on the one hand, be totally on guard against that in all of your studies, that that uh, your mind and perhaps the mind of the person that you're studying is is going to be afflicted by this delusion, which is going to make it hard to really grasp what's being talked about. And secondly, the best thing that you can do for yourself, the best thing that you can do for your uh, philosophical and scholarly studies is to is to uh, achieve stream entry and get past that attachment to the the notion of the essentiality of the self. That there, there's got to be there's got to be a self in here looking out the windows of the eyes and deciding what to do and when to do it. I just can't conceive of any other way things work, and so everything else flows from that. So.
the work that you've got to do is to realize that the self is that we imagine we are is an illusion. And it's important to understand illusion. Illusion means that something appears to be something that it's not. Illusion doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. You know? And one of the problems that we have uh, trying to introduce people to Buddhist studies is, well, the first thing you've got to learn is that you don't have a self. Oh, that means I don't exist? Well, you know, no, it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't mean that at all. But it means that the self that you think you are doesn't exist. That, the, that what is there uh, is not the self that you think it is. And you, you have this perception that it must, you need something like that. So as soon as you take away the self, well, you've got to, I've got to substitute out something else. There's got to be something else to fill the gap because how else could things work? And that's, that's the problem that you have to get past. That's the thing that, that we're trying to get beyond. Yes. What are the steps to doing that? Meditation. Okay. Well, first, what you do in meditation, uh, I mean, there's many different ways that you can use meditation to achieve that. But all of them involve achieving the focus uh, and the clarity of awareness so that you can begin to examine things in a way that will lead you to that understanding. So... Any meditation practice must do that, and any meditation practice that isn't leading to, to uh, the kind of focus that we call concentration and the very high level of mindful awareness uh, that, that you need to see things isn't going to help you. But then the other real value of meditation is you sit down in a quiet place, you close your eyes, you've reduced a lot of the, the noise and disturbance of distraction, and you can begin to examine what's actually taking place. And, uh, of course, the two things that our self seems to do uh, that uh, is, is that our, our self seems to be the experiencer. Everything happens to me. And the other thing is that the self is the doer. I decide whether to scratch my nose or not. And so you focus on those two. You examine your experience to see if there is really an experiencer. In in the seeing, is there a seer? And the hearing, is there a hearer? And you don't take a quick glance at it and assume you know the answer. You keep looking. And when you start to have understanding, you keep looking some more until it starts to come clear. But even more powerful, I think, for most people is to look at the doer. You think you're, decide- you think you're the doer and you think you're deciding what to do. So really pay attention to that. And then you start to realize that, well, you're not the doer, but, well, maybe I'm the intender, though, behind the doing. And then you start watching the intentions, and then you'll see that the intentions arise, and they don't need the self at all. And if you watch really carefully, you'll find that the self is not 
continuously present. There's a lot of experiencing, seeing, hearing, feeling, thinking, where there's no self there. And there's a lot of intending leading to doing, where there isn't the self there. And once you get clear at that, you might start catching the self arising and appropriating the experience or appropriating the intention to itself. Ah, I'm seeing. Oh, I'm deciding. <laughs> I'm doing. And that is, when you start to see that, and it starts to become clear that the seeing and the doing are arising out of the five aggregates, another really valuable thing to do is to really learn to understand what this five aggregates business is all about. And that's not easy to do because there are not too many good and accurate descriptions of the five aggregates out there. <laughs> so, but, but if, you, uh, if you study a number of different descriptions of the five aggregates, uh, what, what one writer failed to tell you, another writer might, and it might uh, become clear to you. Um, you're familiar with the five aggregates? You're not. Oh, okay. Well, maybe a lot of you aren't. It's, I'll just t tell you briefly, it's the tool that the Buddha provided. He, his first reference to it is in the very first teaching that he gave. Uh, the turning of the wheel of the Dharma, uh, description of the four uh, noble truths, and his explanation of the first truth, which is the, the truth of dukkha, is that this, these five aggregates to which we cling are dukkha. So then in his second teaching, which happens to be on the subject of not-self, he introduced the five aggregates in, in somewhat more detail. But it was a theme that came up again over and over again for 45 years. The idea here is the Buddha said, here's a tool for you to explore this idea of anatta, of no uh, of, of there being no self or soul the way you perceive it to be. An individual consists of rupa, or form. And, of course, you, there's a lot of depth you can go into that. The, at the, the, the simplest and, and, and least useful interpretation of that is, oh, body, yes, rupa, rupa is body. Uh, it goes much beyond that. Secondly, there are feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral that are a part of every experience that we have. And more, most importantly, is that there are two kinds of pleasant and two kinds of unpleasant. There is the pleasant and unpleasant that arises from uh, rupa, from the physical. And then there is pleasant and the unpleasant that is uh, that arises from the mental. So the, the second of the five aggregates is feeling. The third is perception. That, uh, uh, and, and the fourth is mental formations. And the fifth is consciousness. Now when consciousness takes an object, and the objects are rupa, any of the six kinds of sense objects are rupa, when consciousness takes an object, 
there is a perception, right? You hear something, and there is a perception. You hear a sound while you're meditating, and you say, oh, bird, oh, dog barking. That's a perception. Where does the bird or the dog come from when you're sitting there in the room with your eyes closed and vibrations in the air make your eardrums vibrate? Where does the dog and the bird come in? It comes from the mental formations. The mental formations are all of your previous experience. All of everything that you have experienced, everything that you've thought about, everything that you've done, all of your reactions, uh, the emotions associated with that, and the intentions behind it. They're all, they make up the mental formations, and they are going to generate a perception in any given moment. What you have been your entire life since you were born is these five aggregates. The, the form aggregate, the feeling aggregate, perceptions aggregate, the mental formations aggregate, and the consciousness aggregate. And the consciousness, there's six kinds of consciousness corresponding to the five physical senses and the mind sense. And from the time you were born, as consciousnesses rose and took their object, accompanied by feelings, mental formations were created. And when that happened subsequently, the mental formations that were already created played a part in producing perception. So it is in this aggregate of mental formations that uh, our personality characteristics are to be found. Yeah. Well, how does the feeling feel itself? Uh, I'm not sure that a feeling does feel itself. A feeling is just that quality of pleasantness or, or unpleasantness. When they become the object of consciousness, yes. yes. And the, the consciousness and its mental features, the feeling, perception, volition, they work together knowing the object. Yes. Uh, uh, and my question is, how does the present feeling feels itself? Okay. Well, if I understand you correctly, what you're asking about is the process of examining the five aggregates. Okay, so if you examine the five aggregates and you take feelings as the object of consciousness and being conscious of feelings is associated with feeling, then that would be feeling, feeling itself? Is that sort of the idea? The subjective part of the experience, yes. Well, what we do all of the time 
uh, is consciousness takes feelings as an object, and, and this this is this is a folding in on itself because uh, consciousness can take mental formations as an object, perceptions as an object, uh, feelings as an object, and sensations, which are truly what rupa is, as an object. I mean, most of the time we don't. Most of the time we have the subjective experience of the feeling, uh, but we don't take it as a direct object of consciousness. Rather, the, the feeling is just one of the uh, accompanying mental concomitants of our experience of the moment. But we can take the feeling as an object of consciousness. Now, if we, and we do this in meditation, if you meditate on the five aggregates, part of the process, or if you follow the what's called the satipatthana or the applications of mindful awareness, part of that practice is to take your feel, the feelings themselves of just pleasantness and unpleasantness as an as object of consciousness. Now, you're not, it's not a problem. We do it. I mean, logically, you may say, well, how can the feelings feel themselves? They're not really. Consciousness is taking the feeling as object. That's an act of perception. Uh, probably what, what is going to happen is, if you can see, if your mind moves so very, very quickly. If you can see your feelings clearly, uh, that may result in, very quickly after that, a conceptual experience of being pleased with being able to do that. And that doesn't, but, you know, if, if you're examining a painful experience and then you're feeling pleased at being able to see the unpleasantness separate from the sensation, that doesn't mean the satisfaction you get is the feeling feeling itself. It's actually a feeling arising independently in a second act of cognition. You cognize the pain or you, you cognize the painful experience, you refine that cognition, and you cognize the unpleasantness of it separate from the sensation itself. And then, and separate from that, comes the feeling of being pleased with yourself for having done that. I don't know if that's helping you to in this or not. Don't get caught in the logical you know, analysis say, well, how can you, how can you do this? Just do it. <laughs> so. um, if I may uh, respond to Tiana's uh, earlier question. Uh, this semester, the university is actually offering a course on Buddhist psychology, in which we, we oh, that's wonderful. And so, you know, I, so I, I should be looking forward to your attending. It has an undergraduate component. It has both the undergraduate and the graduate component, and it has, it has no prerequisites. And so this is a class where we, we discuss five aggregates and, you know, all these. Definitely. You, you, you could do that. You could definitely do that. And I was thinking, I was just thinking about how could you miss that? <laughs> I'm looking forward to having you in the class. And also another thing, another possible step we might take in order to help us experience uh, what Chuodasa was uh, 
describing earlier, and that would be to attend one of Chuladasa's meditation retreats. And by the way, I think in a couple days or so, uh, Chuladasa will be leading a retreat here. Uh, starting side. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. Starting this afternoon. Oh, this afternoon. I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> From my my understanding is that there there is still a few vacancies. Uh, yes, there there are. Right, and also in the meantime, we're uh, organizing uh, a meditation camp that's going to be led by Chuladasa, and the event is uh, still in the process of uh, getting approved by the university. But in all likelihood, if things go uh, smoothly, then we'll have the meditation camp sometime in November. Yes, it will be the uh, first weekend that is fully in November. Not not the one that starts on the 31st, Friday the 31st. So I think it's the 6th, 7th, and 8th of November. That's the weekend that we're looking at. It'll be a, a Friday, Saturday, Sunday teaching where uh, we'll, we'll introduce meditation techniques and, uh, and some... Uh, Dharma applications at the same time. Does it come with guarantee of winning stream entry? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Did, did you want? Did you want that in this lifetime, or <laughs> you know, it's like an extended warranty. If you want it in this lifetime, it's going <laughs> to. You're going to have to work harder, which is worth it. <laughs> Yes. I have a question uh, regarding your response to Dharma uh, Jews, uh, talking about the, um, uh, when you get in a stage and we help, we, we uh, working to maintain at the, the stage, uh, but how, how, how can you, um, like, a, like a my experience, I, I have a few times get into the, the way that when you says, Unification, mm-hmm. but then that's it, mm-hmm. and then they never got again. But how? So how can I uh, work to maintain that experience? Well, <clears throat> first of all, don't become attached to a unification experience. I mean, to have had a unification experience is to have learned something very important. It is. It produces a shift in perspective. And if you are able to experience that on other occasions, it will further reinforce that particular shift in perspective. But it's not necessary that you ever have the unification experience again. What you want to have is the complete non-dual experience that uh, brings you to, to stream entry. And so there is a danger in becoming attached to uh, meditation experiences and mystical experiences and spending a lot of time and effort trying to reproduce them. If you have arrived at that through a particular meditation practice and you continue to practice in the same way, there is, of course, a much greater probability that the experience will be repeated. But don't chase it. Instead, if you have arrived at it uh, in a meditation practice, continue the practice that originally created the conditions for it. And if it's repeated again, fine. But if it's not, continue the practice because a systematic practice will ultimately lead you to the far more important mystical experience. Yeah, that, that's the answer part of my question. But uh, the actually, the other question is like, 
I thought you say that Sun Yen, I mean, I mean, I follow, follow, follow him too. Uh, but he said, uh, he, he talking about the, the, uh, the, the non-unification and the unification, and then, and, and he say, he say, uh, you got working on, they got keeping, keeping working to, um, to maintain that, that right, to maintain it, that, that state, that label, that experience. If, if I understand him correctly, I, I think what, what uh, the Honorable Sheng Yang was saying was that uh, once you have the, the uh, realization of no cell, then what, you're, what you want to do is, um, even as you are uh, living in ordinary worldly conditions, you try to make whatever lessons you have acquired from the realization relevant in that, in that everyday setting. Yes, abs uh, absolutely. That's, that's very good that this has come up. Yeah. The most important thing, when you do meditation practice and you have insights at, at, at any level of insight, it is important to afterwards try to bring the understanding into, uh, into your overall understanding and every part of your life. So if you have... If you have a no-self experience, but then you're out in the world, you no longer have the no-self experience, but yeah. you have the recollection of what you learned from that. So you can keep reminding yourself. When you find yourself feeling very real and substantial, you can remind yourself of the experience that you had and what you learned from it. Uh, as a matter of fact, back to my original topic and theorizing about that, as accumulates, uh, as you as insights accumulate, if if you keep applying those insights to your experience over and over and over again, that may be one of the ways that we can become a stream entrant without having uh, you know the uh, sudden shocking experience of, of of the Magapala as the trigger for that, because. The essence of what seems to happen is a mind functions in such a way that it generates the concept of self and the concept of an independently existent external world. And the parts of the mind that do that operate at a non-conscious level. And they, they're programmed to do it that way. What we're doing is we're reprogramming them. So we can reprogram them all at once, or we can reprogram them gradually over time. Insights that you have, even intellectual level of understanding, the more intellectual level of understanding of non-self and, and uh, emptiness that you have, if you can keep applying that to your experience, your ordinary everyday experience, until it becomes more and more and more of the way you understand things, then it's going to to change the way your mind responds to things. You're going to start responding from a worldview of emptiness rather than responding from a worldview of, of independently existing objects. And likewise, a worldview of non-self rather than a worldview of a cherished self that lies at the center of all this experience. So it is very important for any kind of insight, any kind of understanding that you have to actualize that in daily life. 
as much as you can. I think that is an extremely important part of the path. You know, and there's many different interpretations of what the, the sutra that is called the Satipatthana Sutra, or the Four Applications of Mindfulness Teaching, is about. But personally, you know, and I think I could defend this really strongly against just about anybody, that sutra is about insight in daily life. It's not really primarily about meditation. It, in the beginning, it's about meditation. But the vast majority of the four, well, all of the last three applications and uh, the majority of the first application uh, are things that you can do and should do in every waking moment. So, have I saturated you? <laughs> well, I've certainly enjoyed this. I always enjoy these talks, and I enjoyed your questions. They were wonderful. And I'm sorry I, if I didn't answer your question quite as well as uh, you wanted, but uh, thank you very much. Thank you.